Welcome to the Policy at McCombs podcast, a data-driven conversation on the economic issues of today. In this series, we invite guests into our studio to provide a highlight of their work presented during a visit to the University of Texas at Austin. Policy at McCombs is produced by the Center for Enterprise and Policy Analytics at the McCombs School of Business. I am your co-host, Carlos Carvalho, with my colleague, Mario Villarreal. Hi, my name is Mario Villarreal, and I am from the Center of Enterprise and Policy Analytics, and today I'm here with Ryan Streeter. Ryan Streeter is the Director of Domestic Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, AEI, where he oversees research in education, American citizenship, politics, public opinion, and social and cultural studies. Before joining AEI, he was Executive Director of the Center for Politics and Governance at the University of Texas at Austin. His recent work includes two interesting uh, pieces. One is a survey on community and society uh, that is designed to contribute to the literature on social capital. And the second one is a collection of essays uh, called Localism in America, where they explore how uh, communities may work together to solve important problems and issues of local governance. So thank you for being with us today, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Great to be back. What would you highlight as the most important lessons of your work about localism and how communities work together to deal with uh, important social problems? Well, I think that the first thing that's worth saying, and this is evident in some of the findings from the survey that you you mentioned, which we did with uh, NORC at the University of Chicago, really using a lot of questions that haven't been asked in quite a long time, as a lot of public opinion research is focused on political attitudes. We wanted to drill down a couple of of layers and ask people about the quality of their communities, uh, how they think that things are going in their communities. Basic questions like, how many friends do you have? How far does it take? How long does it take you to get to the grocery store? We asked all those questions as well as the kind of right track, wrong track questions that, that you typically ask people. And I think, you know, consistent with other Uh, survey research that's been done, um, our survey shows pretty clearly that when you ask people about their communities, um, they have, a first of all, a much higher regard for their communities than they do the country as a whole, typically. Um, they they trust their local government con- significantly more than they trust the federal government, and that's, cons- that's been consistent with what Pew's found over years, um, and our findings are very consistent with theirs. But you also find that um, people are much more optimistic about the direction that their communities are going compared to the direction that the country's going. And that has to do with just the state of things in general. It also has to do with the economy. Um, people uh, are less likely to say that the economy will be better in 12 months, but much more likely to say that their own personal situation will will be better. And that goes for pretty much every de- demographic, including working class Americans. And so I think there's something fundamental in those findings that gets to the, the nature of people's attachment to place itself. And I think given the... Um, you know, well-documented and significant um, divisions that we have in this country right now, politically and ideologically, that, that those are very real divisions. And the survey research is very clear about that, too. People um, think uh, in ideologically divisive terms in ways that are much more pronounced and stark than, than 40 years ago. I think what there's what we've seen, and this is reflected in our localism volume that you mentioned, it's an edited collection with people from across the ideological spectrum who contributed to it, um, this understanding that um, we've perhaps tried to nationalize, that's my term, but nationalize issues uh, on a grand scale, uh, trust our national politics to deal with them, debate those things in national forums, and, and look for solutions from the federal 
federal government when, in fact, it might make more sense on some really big, important issues from inequality to um, even immigration and, and even some parts of climate change, for instance, to think again more constructively about what regional governments, what state governments and what local governments can be doing, perhaps should be doing um, to combat these issues. And we might actually have more long term success if we um, kind of remember some of the lessons of the past about what it means to meaningfully situate responsible for problem solving at the local level. So I think, you know, the the the, the main the main point here is that um, local governance and local problem solving is actually very consistent with where most Americans minds and hearts are. They're, they're, they're closer to home rather than than farther away. I see. Um, now, regarding attitudes towards optimism uh, within local communities and the way they interact with each other, that's a very interesting aspect of it. But there is the other aspect about the possibilities of communities actually coordinating in effective ways to actually come up with effective solutions. Now, those interactions often uh, are embedded within a policy framework, either dictated by local governments, state governments, or federal governments. In your research, uh, could you highlight some of the features that you think are useful in public policies to facilitate that process of communities organizing themselves and making the best out of that uh, close-knit social fabric and features that may impede that Mm-hmm. That that process. That's a great question. I I think that there are some pretty interesting lessons in some a series of public policy reforms in the 1990s that sort of get at what these policy features are that you're talking about. And I'll come to the specifics in just a second. But to say more generally, I think uh, looked at from the federal policy lens, I think what what has worked in the past on federal policy and and also state policy vis-a-vis local communities is to have policies that are that are goal-based where you're trying to reach certain goals but allow for and, and perhaps even require a certain flexibility in terms of who the players are that are actually helping reach those those goals and this has been written about in other regulatory reform literature as well kind of goal-based regulation um, versus uh, overly stipulated um, processes And I think you saw this in um, welfare reform in the 1990s, um, which Republicans passed, Bill Clinton signed. Um, it had supporters and detractors uh, on, on, on both sides. But what, what, um, what the policy had um, that most people talk about was that it imposed work requirements on people. And that's been the most controversial thing. And that's what people have debated and people have studied. But there's a second, you know, in my mind, equally as important, if not more important, feature to that. Um, policy, which essentially took the role of counties and the the state government and then its subdivisions as the place where that policy had to be worked out to actually provide services to help people move into the, the workforce. And there's some evidence in the literature that states that did second-order devolution, where they took the resources from the federal government and devolved those to the county and municipal level, actually had better employment outcomes um, because you had more actors within the community involved. But how they did that, whether it was through partnerships with chambers of commerce and schools, whether it was through welfare agencies working together with workforce development agencies, that was really left to the discretion of the local leaders, but they were provided with resources and basic goals to meet. You can actually see those very similar lessons in the community policing movement of uh, uh, 1994 was when the federal law was passed 
class there, which really um, proliferated around the country after that. Community policing has a longer history, but um, the federal government actually, by providing resources and goals, we, we saw communities adopting this policing model um, all throughout the country and to the point where, you know, the majority of people live in communities where that are, are governed um, by that model in terms of their police force. You can also see the same thing in public housing reform in the early 1990s, also school reform, where you had basic goals set in place, but there was the expectation that local communities would have some flexibility in how to to meet those goals. It's probably a good time for us to revisit um, some of those some of those discussions. Um, in terms of limitations, um, this becomes difficult when you have issues where the goals really have to be met in a much broader way than than are under the control of a municipality. And I think you know the most obvious case would be sort of climate change policy, for instance. That would be a little bit more more difficult to work at at the local level. Having said that, I still think cities are at the forefront of this debate. I mean, in terms of of innovation, in terms of uh, reducing uh, uh, the carbon footprint of new construction and the like, that really is is coming about through a lot of innovation that's happening uh, at the local level and even in the private sector. We need, we need to encourage more of that. So I don't think localities don't have a role to play there. But when you have goals that cross state lines and all of that, you'll see a limitation to some of these policies for sure. Now, it seems very natural for, for people to think that complex problem, complex social problems require some sort of centrally planned top-down intervention to be dealt with effectively. And there's a natural thing about that. It's a matter of the scale or knowledge. Lynn Ostrom, as you you know, she won the Nobel Prize by pointing out that sometimes uh, commons uh, problems and governance of natural resources uh, can be dealt with and be solved by bottom-up approaches that tend to be messy, tend to be not neat and clean, but they are effective. Now, how would you respond to those criticism? I, you already allude, alluded a little bit to the challenges of large-scale problems and uh, to be solved within localism structures and local governance structures. But how would you answer that criticism of uh, scale and knowledge uh, in dealing with with these problems? Well, I would say that you really need to be um, focused on the issue at hand and where the solution ultimately comes from or is most likely to come from and try to be as honest about that as you can and and deal with these these problems as public policy matters so, sort of with respect to um, the the issues that essentially define the kind of larger goal and I think that you know for for instance um, we talk about inequality and income stagnation in the middle, um, you know, higher gains in the upper upper tail, and this this growing problem of inequality, and and most of the uh, debate that we consume through whether it's social media or through news outlets is happening about federal policy and what we should be doing to the tax code and these sorts of things. I would say. Uh, and I used to say this to my, my students just to get their eyebrows to raise, but say there, there is no national solution to inequality. Inequality is a function of all these regional sort of variations. And I think you can see that. I'll just give an example. I mean, Raj Chetty's work's been probably the, the best known in this in this area, so I'll cite that since since listeners might be familiar with it. But in his work with his colleagues on the Moving to Opportunity study, which was also created back in the early 1990s as a part of this domestic reform kind of uh, uh, um, era that I was talking about, one of the things I think is really interesting about their findings is that income mobility from the bottom upwards across the country is very different depending on where you are. You know, same same federal policies, same payroll tax policy, same income tax policies. We, we could argue that those should be different levels and that might uh, affect some, some outcomes differently. But 
if you expand EITC, if you increase wage, wage subsidies, if you if you do all of those things, um, you'll make the discomfort and pain of being at a low income less painful. But if the issue is mobility, then you need to actually look at what drives mobility. And what often drives mobility is the labor market where you live, whether or not it's possible to be in an economy that's more inclusive. And so to put it very crudely, it's better to be poor, better to be born poor in some cities in America than than others. Um, in, in Salt Lake City, there's there's really good upward mobility for people born in the lower lowest fifth quintile. Whereas in some some cities in the southeast or whatever, it's very, very hard to get out of that that lowest quintile. So that you're dealing with lo- local forces and you could you could you could talk about structural racism, you can talk about um, lack of access to the opportunity sort of gateways through a, a good post-secondary education, even if it's a non-four-year kind of environment, where you have good employer partnerships with a with a, an efficient community college system, even very localized within a larger metro area, you'll see really good outcomes. And so I think that's where you need to actually, if you really care about this problem, you should be asking questions about how regions can actually make the mobility environment where they are much more successful than, than it has been. And I, I just, I've, I've been very unpersuaded that there are federal, the federal policies that are being debated, pick your pick your favorite one, as, an, as a response to inequality. Well, I don't think any of them will actually have the effect that having a much more effective regional system would, would have. And I think that's just true empirically in the in the evidence. And perhaps not only about uh, a permanent long-term solutions or processes that facilitate upward mobility, but also ways to ease the pain of those that they are in less favorable, favorable positions. You don't work on charity and solidarity and those kind of things. So I wonder if, if these surveys and these essays also touch on how small communities are perhaps Uh, an effective way to deal with these uh, problems and be uh, helpful of those in need in more effective ways than large-scale federal programs, perhaps? Well, I think that anywhere there has been success in helping people from the lower end of the income distribution find ways to move up, there's a there's a there's often an unreported sort of sub-story about the role of civil society in the civic environment that's that's there. The hollowing out of civic life in working class America is something that seems very real and is problematic. And so in some parts of the country where we, in the same towns where you've seen factories close and you've seen jobs go away, and the same places where you've seen the rise in, in the opioid crisis, where it's been the most pronounced, you also have seen a kind of a dissolution of the civic order in those places. And that's a that's a big issue that um, no one knows exactly what the right solution is. But when you look at wh- why people actually get access to opportunity, how they move into an area, let's say, to a post-secondary environment and actually finish and then end up in the labor market in a much better position than where their family was when they, they started – the role of networks is really important. And there's a pretty big literature on this, too, that networks don't just matter for highly networked, more affluent college graduates. I mean, that that, that is a an, a very important thing of the post-secondary experience and beyond for, for people that come from the upper middle class and and have got a four-year college degree. But there's there's a, a significant body of, of literature that shows that even in low-income communities, people who have more relationships and more friends and more connections actually have better uh, labor market outcomes, both in terms of their immediate wages, they, the the jobs pay better that they get immediately, and their long term income gains are higher. Um, 
what I think is, is part of our problem is we don't have enough bridging social capital, as, as some uh, social scientists have called it, within communities to help that student in a low-income community going to a school with mostly low-income classmates um, have relationships with people in the post-secondary environment who themselves are connected to employers in the, much in the same way that, that kids from, low, from higher-income families have. And some communities do a better job of, make, of bridging those connections. And, and I think instead of relying on just local ingenuity and, and basically accidents of local entrepreneurship and, and leadership to produce these outcomes, we ought to factor those into our, into our public policy. We ought to, in our post-secondary um, public policy environment, learn some of these lessons that we've, we've learned from uh, some of the policies I was talking about earlier, where the role of the community is actually presupposed and perhaps even required in the implementation of those, of those policies. Yeah, perhaps the sum of the small things may not be as small at the end, right? Especially in this certainly in individual cases, that's that's really really true. You can look at two kids who start out um, in equally challenging uh, circumstances. One does much better than other. Certainly, there are natural things, natural abilities that that play into that. But often, it's a it's a function of the community where where they are. It does sort of you know take a village after all. And that's evident in Chetty's research too, right? The, 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 the students that moved into communities where they had um, more intact uh, neighborhood dynamics, um, better school systems, the kind of social capital where the expectation among their classmates was that they would go to college and all that, their outcomes now match the students where they went to school with in those new communities um, more than, than the outcomes of the students in those neighborhoods that they, that they left. So communities matter. Yes, Ryan. Yeah, fascinating. Perhaps as as a way to to wrap up our conversation, where would you like to see this research going? Here at SIPA, we value empirical research a lot, and we think that there is an important aspect of actually assessing the real impact of public policies in certain aspects of social life in from an empirical point of view. Of course this type of research is hard to assess empirically, but I don't want to lead the answer, but but I will be interested in, in learning what are the next steps, what what Ryan and AI believe are the next steps in this type of research. Yeah, great question and really important. A couple of things come to mind right off the bat. One is, I think, more research consistent with your own colleague here, uh, John Hatfield, who's a political economist here at McCombs. He's done some interesting work on subdivisions of local government and the relationship to uh, economic performance in an area. And his, his work, he, he contributed to our volume as well, and his work um, has shown that when you have this competition of municipalities within a larger region, you you actually get better economic outcomes around the region for a variety of, of reasons that he explains. I think that just that um, area itself uh, kind of calls for more research. I mean, his, his research has really kind of opened the door to some of these larger questions about the, the relationship between where governance for certain types of policies is situated and the kind of uh, outcomes that we're all hoping for economically and socially in an area is important, and there could be more in that field. Um, I also think that the role of uh, locally generated and state-generated um, uh, regulations and 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 related statutes and ordinances, their their effect on uh, mobility, I think, is is really an important thing for us to be studying right now. So everything from occupational licensing to non compete agreements to land use policies and what their what their effect is on people's ability to actually relocate to areas where there's opportunity 
um, their ability to actually start new firms and new new enterprises, I think needs needs to be studied even more. I think we have a growing awareness that some of these problems, many of which are actually generated locally, and raises questions about what the state's role is in that regard. How much those things are actually inhibiting access to opportunity is something that I think, um, given the scale of that problem state by state around the country, I don't think there's quite enough empirical research in that area. So that, w- that would be another one that I would look at. And then the third one would be just this whole realm of post-secondary education that's not just four-year college degrees, but those whole non-credited certifications that employers value, training institutes and community colleges. Um, there's a lot more. There's a, lo- a lot of more interesting work that can be done um, in that area uh, related to how to assess where labor markets are changing and growing, where opportunities are, and what schools are actually doing. Are, can they read those signals? You know, and and I think that that's an area where, again, given the importance that it uh, plays, I think, in in regional public policy right now, there's not as much literature there as there should be. Well, for grad students listening, I think that Ryan just set up like at least five or six dissertation topics <laughs> right here. <laughs> Hopefully so. Hopefully we'll get some takers. <laughs> that, that's correct. Thank you very much for being with us today, Ryan. Great to be with you. Thanks. Before we wrap up, you can get more information in our Medium page. Thanks for listening to Policy at McCombs. See you next time.